All right, please do turn in a copy of God's Word to Psalm 72. Um, You can find it in the Pew Bible, I believe on page 485, but it's inevitably somewhere right near the middle of your Bible if you open it up to Psalm 72. We're going to take a a pause in our normal series, and uh, we're going to spend some time uh, building up to Christmas, uh, focus on different themes, and I'll explain a bit more about that. Uh, in, uh, in Advent. Advent is, uh, is about the celebration of the coming of the anointed uh, Messiah. Uh, angels announced it. Uh, uh, some loved it. Some, some hated it. And uh, we'll be reading some of those, as I mentioned, building up to Christmas. Advent marks a season uh, of longing. Uh, it's also a season of longing, uh, not just anticipation, looking forward to the Christ's first coming, but also for us now, looking to his second Advent, his Second uh, coming. Of course, people who know me uh, and know our tradition as Presbyterians, we we don't make much of seasons and we know that we don't need a season uh, to reset and recalibrate us. We don't need a season. We need a cycle. And the Lord in his good providence and his perfect design has done that. And so uh, the cycle is every seven days. We come to the Lord's day and we come to the Lord's table and his word and to his people and the means of grace uh, to reset and to it's rather simple, but it's very predictable. And uh, we're going to consider a psalm this morning that conveys part of that spirit of longing. And I thought, you know, um, I might get in trouble. I'll just go ahead and say this up front for doing this. But it was about 20 years ago to the day or to at least the month. Uh, that I uh, was longing for a wife. I was a, a newly ordained pastor, and uh, and I was lonely. And uh, there were a lot of ladies in the church that wanted to line me up in the Campbell Choir. They wanted to line me up with their daughter, and I wasn't interested. Uh, but I met this beautiful woman uh, 20 years ago, Krista, and uh, and that and that was uh, that was all she wrote. Um, but during that quick season, by the way, and I'm glad her parents are here so they can confirm this. But it was only about eight weeks into knowing Krista that I came and asked for their blessing. To marry their daughter. Yeah, you should have seen the look on their face. It was, it, was, it was pretty remarkable. In that season, I wrote to a group of my friends and I said, I'm really excited about this girl. And I wrote them an email and I said, let me tell you all about her. And, you know, she's got these musical talents and she loves Jesus and she loves missions. And I you know, named off all of these things about her. And some of my friends uh, wrote me back. Literally, this is what they said. Many of them were thrilled. Some were shocked. They wrote and they said, wow, she sounds like a great catch, Troy. Uh, One of them wrote back, is she this, if she's this great, then what does she see in you? (laughs) Fair enough, fair enough. Uh, One of them literally wrote, is she human? And uh, why, 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 why do I bring this up uh, in addition to the fact that I like to see my wife embarrassed in public? Um, It's because there are times when we dig in on Scripture with prophetic visions of Messiah and promises, and we think, how could this be fulfilled? The details, the the timing, the characteristics, the qualities, but that's how God works. And of course, when we are anticipating uh, a Messiah to come, we think, is this even as we were, or we're about to read this psalm, and you're going to think to yourself, is this really a king, right? Is this a, is this a human being? Is this possible that a king would have all of these characteristics and they would reign and rule in such a way? Is this an earthly king? Is this a human being? And I think the answer is yes and no. But I will let you decide for yourself. I know you just sat down. Let me invite you in deference to God's word to stand one more time. We're going to read the entirety of this psalm. 
Psalm 72. Hear this. This is the word of God. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. May the fear of you while the sun endures as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that, earth, that water the earth. In his days, the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. And may the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. Verse 12, for he delivers the needy when he calls. The poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence he redeems their life. And precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoke for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land and on tops of the mountain may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon and may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. You may be seated. This is God's word. Thanks be to him. Would you pray with me? Father, simply put, would you, Lord, forgive us our sins? Would you clear our minds? Would you clear our hearts, our ears that we might hear? Lord, we recognize, we want to recognize your voice and return to you and leave here this day rejoicing. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Our world uh, is messed up and so too is our culture. There you go. I stated the obvious. We could be done right there, but we need hope, right? Uh, we know that's the reality. We, we live in a country. We live in a place. Uh, we're blessed to have a democracy. It's a, it's a governance that is by the people, for the people. The principles and the policies that we espouse uh, are, are good, you know, uh, constitutionally. We, we, we're, we're happy. But, but we know that something is not right. We know that things are not entirely full of integrity. And there is not things like justice. We truly need a king. The best, of, the best form of government, uh, you might argue with me, uh, maybe we could take this up on the podcast, John, we both are political science majors, uh, we could take this up, but probably the very best form of government uh, in the world, in the broken, fallen world as it exists, is democracy, right? Because there is so much that we need by way of checks and balances, and there's so much uh, that can happen. There are institutions that are corrupt. There are communities that are corrupt. There are leaders that are corrupt. We are corrupt. We, all the way down to us, everyone individually has been tainted uh, by sin. And so the best form of government uh, is, 
in a fallen world, a democracy. But the best form of government that you could possibly imagine, that we could dream of, that we could, uh, we, we could set our hopes upon and build on, is a benevolent dictatorship where there is a king who has ultimate authority. Not, not, not figurehead, not limited, nothing. An ultimate authority, but one who truly wants everyone's best interest, where justice is executed perfectly and properly at all times. The, the psalmist here, this is a psalm that, you know, oftentimes a, song, a psalm can be a song or it can be a prayer. This one is a prayer of anticipation, presumably composed by King David. We, we're, we're given a tip uh, when you look at the end of the, uh, of the passage in verse 20, where it says uh, the prayers of of David, the son of Jesse, we would anticipate that this is, it's written there, it's of or for Solomon. So this is possibly near the end of David's life. And he's envisioning that God had promised that there would be this line that continues through him. And so he is praying for his son, Solomon, who would become and take the throne. Now, I, I don't know about you, but I read this and I think everybody thinks their kid's slightly above average, right? <laughs> uh, but, you know, I'm like, I want to say, David, I, I mean, this might be a bit of a stretch. If you're thinking this is your son, I mean, he is not that special. Uh, but, uh, but, of course, that's because we understand that there is a fulfillment that is immediate. And then there's one that is distant in this. There is actually something in view that is fulfilled and the kingdom of David continued through Solomon. But there's something yet greater that he is anticipating and looking toward. That is an ultimate Messiah and Christ. There's no doubt it has to be. Because this can't be, we think to ourselves, a, a, a human being alone. We've given, we're going to be giving attention this month uh, to some of the themes of the carol that we weren't able to sing in, to in total because of technology difficulties. But come, thou long expected Jesus. Don't worry, we'll sing it in future weeks. And we're going to build off some different themes and different passages that highlight what it is that we're looking forward. Obviously, today it's Christ being our king. And, uh, and next week, we're going to have uh, from Christ the King Presbyterian in Cambridge, uh, Pastor Drake's going to come down, and I'm going to be away, and I'll be preaching uh, for him. So uh, be, be in anticipation. But one of the lines that we just sang was, born thy people to deliver, born a child, and yet a king. He was born to reign in us forever. He was born uh, to, uh, to bring a gracious kingdom. And it says, by, his, by your own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts by thy own, your all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. Do you believe that? Right? Like the descriptors here, all-sufficient, eternal, reigning throne. I mean, Jesus is all fine, uh, meek and mild, but there's something about Jesus ascending a throne, right, that uh, is, is controversial. That we, we're fine with baby Jesus, we're fine with, you know, with, with Jesus who uh, perhaps, you know, feeds the hungry. But what about Jesus Christ as the preeminent reigning king? It, it gets us into troubles. Jesus has the audacity to claim that he's savior. He has uh, even more, perhaps, in, in a way to say that he is king. But I, th I think it's fairly safe to assume that the sentiment of Jesus is, I mean, love me or hate me, but for God's sake, and that's what I mean. For God's sake, don't just tolerate me. Maybe there's more that Jesus wants from us uh, by way of our surrender or our allegiance uh, that we would actually engage some of who he says he is and 
what he has done. Are you open to that? Are you open to being persuaded uh, this day? Maybe for the first time or maybe uh, to just refresh and recalibrate today. Jesus is the altogether long expected Messiah who rules with authority. And as we have seen, as this prayer, he would fulfill mercy through this rich uh, Hebrew poetry that we have in front of us. If you want to break it down, I've listed them in the order of service, four questions. First of all, who is like this king? Uh, Second is, how does this king reign? Uh, The third question, maybe not one that you would anticipate, is why is it that we don't like this king? What is it that we don't like about this king outlined here in Psalm 72? And then the last thing uh, by way of application is, how would we respond? How would we respond to a king that is outlined here in Psalm 72? So what, what, first of all, is who is this king and what is he like? David is so bold in praying for a king that's like this because of the promise of the covenant. We talked about that in previous weeks. In 2 Samuel, it is told of David in 2 Samuel 7 that he is going to have a line, that he will have a lineage that rules uh, through all the ages, throughout, down through uh, eternity, that will be a descendant of David. He makes a covenant bond and pledge, uh, God does, with King David. God promised, of course, before that to Abraham, showing forth mercy and love and blessing. And all of the echoes of that are here. God being true, God making good on his promises. He prays boldly also, David does here, because of the curse, right? Like he, He's not just ignorant of the fact that the people of God and in the people in the world uh, beyond the people of promise, uh, have hardship. Verse 4, the details here of poverty. Uh, verse 9, that there are enemies. The fact that there is conflict in the world is part of why we need a king. Um, that Verse 9, there is oppression and violence that is taking place. Was that true only in the ancient Near East? No, no, you, you and I both are aware of how that is still true to this day. This is what we would consider, not explicitly, but implicitly, a messianic psalm. These are psalms that are uh, anticipating, prophetically even talking about uh, a king that would come as a true Messiah. Uh, We know that some of the songs are explicitly uh, messianic because even Jesus himself in the New Testament and the Gospels will take up the language of of a psalm and, and say it back in prayer. I mean, even when, when Christ, uh, Jesus himself is on the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting from Psalm 22, a messianic psalm. This particular one is not reiterated or referenced uh, in the New Testament. And after we read it, we, we think to ourselves, you know, wow, uh, the description here is pretty profound. There's, uh, so there's power, there's, there's beauty here. And we need that beauty because Our rebellion and our sin has taken us to dark places. We're covered with with darkness. We need the light of hope. We need a king to set things right. That's why we're glad that verse 2 here in this psalm that David is praying, that there is a king in Christ who is to judge with righteousness. And verse 6, who will shower, who will rain, R-A-I-N, rain down uh, mercy. Why would we hope for a, a final? Why would we hope for an ultimate and perfect king because every other king and queen disappoints us you may say well that's why i don't trust in kings and and queens i trust in myself okay how's that been working out for you are you consistent let me ask your family are you consistent 
Are you able to fix yourself? Are you able to change and affect all this? Do you have authority? Do you have all wisdom? To even, if, even if you knew and I knew and had control of the world, and sometimes we live under the illusion that we do, but how do you know that you have the wisdom to exact change as, it's, as it should happen in your realm, in your world, in the community around you? I don't mean this despairingly. Uh, we, we have hope and we want to affect change. But who is the king? Even in all of his military uh, you know, power and wisdom, uh, David uh, failed miserably. And we'll study that next fall when we pick back up in 2 Samuel. And then he even falls into to, to murder and adultery. His son Solomon, who had all the words of wisdom that we've unpacked in part in wisdom literature, uh, Solomon in all of his wisdom himself did not live up to that. He consistently failed to follow through with what he had commended. Certainly David has epic flaws and Solomon does as well. In many ways, uh, that's why we are hoping for an ultimate king. Who is like this king? Who is like Psalm 72? The short and simple answer is no one. Thank you. No one is like this. He is perfect. There's justice. There's peace. There's flourishing that follows uh, his lordship. But none of none of. Those who acknowledge him as king, it says here, are excluded. No area is untouched by this king and his flourishing. Look again at verse 7. His days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. That's pretty remarkable. The sun, verse 17, his name endures forever. May his fame continue as long as the sun. Speaking of the sun, with all of its Grandeur, the, the, the specific prophecy of, um, of Scripture looking forward and anticipating Messiah has multiple horizons. Like I said, one of them is immediate and nearby, and that is fulfilled in David's line and his son, like Psalm. But there's another greater son, a greater king than David to come from King David's line, who is Jesus we're told that he and we'll, we'll be reading in the months of building up to Christmas and at Christmas Eve, the fulfillment of those who are descendants. We'll hear the lineage read of, of Mary and Joseph and we will hear of David's line. We're also told in Philippians 2 that there is therefore in Christ, God highly exalted Christ and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It'll happen or it won't. But it won't be anything in between. And how do we know? Well, we don't. But by faith, we see the power of the resurrection. And we know that if he is raised, he is worthy Who's like this king? No one. Second question, how does this king reign? Well, he reigns in a number of ways here, but he begins somewhere and he ends and drives towards somewhere. He begins reigning in poverty and for poverty and he ends in glory. We heard this, right? There is the needy, but he falls amongst those. He comes amongst those. Uh, He begins with poverty, and it's a good deal greater than any poverty we've ever uh, could imagine. God, in the humiliation of the incarnation, God, Emmanuel, God with us, who is Christ Jesus, is the God-man. He comes and he identifies with our low estate. It's, it's It's a sad thing when a woman who is pregnant cannot find but a barn and a stable to birth her child. 
But it's part of the way that it unfolds in the narrative that God designed it that way, that it would be Jesus that low, that he, his entire life has become needy, never having a place to lay his own head or a home. At every stage, he identifies with our human struggle, even in the womb, even in the womb. It enables us to identify, he, it enables him to identify with our sufferings. Jesus can, he can have genuine compassion and empathy for our struggles and temptations. He even carries it all the way to the ultimate humiliation, which is death on a, a, a cross. We're told in 2 Corinthians, for you know, this is talk about humiliation and poverty. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that by his poverty we might become rich. So he begins there with poverty, but he is on a trajectory toward glory, which begins at resurrection. When other officials assume office, they ascend the throne with hopes and dreams and opportunities and, uh, and lots of ideas, but it cannot be permanent. But here's a king who reigns endlessly. Why? And he endures like the sun and, uh, and like the moon and all the verbiage. If you look at it there in verse 5 and verse 7 and verse 17, sun and, sun and moon, this is going on and on and on. And then it culminates in verse 19. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. This is a, a king who reigns, begins with poverty and reigns with glory. It doesn't always feel that way though, right? Especially given where we live and the time. I, it, I just want to encourage you that he is reigning. There are people more so in the Southern hemisphere and more so in the far East who are converting thousands, tens of thousands every day. There are estimated over 500 churches planted around the world every day. Why? Because Christ is king. Praise be to God. Why do we not like this king? See, I'm already halfway through. Why do we not like this king? Let's have a little moment of honesty with all the things that are listed here in Psalm 72. And we're like, man, this is great. This sounds wonderful. There's peace. There's justice. There's hope. There's flourishing. There's prosperity. There's triumph. But notice of all the things listed that the king brings and the benefits that he bestows, not one of them is freedom. There is authority and there's power. There's even neighboring enemies that are mentioned in verse 9 and in verse 10 that will bow down to this king. Verse 11, may all the kings fall down before him and all the nations serve him. But we don't like this king and we resist his rule because he has the liberty, moreover the authority, to rule our lives. Humans, we by nature, do not love God. We do not want his rule and his reign. We don't want to be told what to do. We cherish and prize our autonomy, our liberty to discern and decide what is best for our lives. We don't want to submit to a king. Do we? You may object and you say, well, no, that's not exactly true. I mean, probably 90% of the world is not atheist. No, you're probably right. I, I mean, a lot of people would, would say, finally, they're not just sheer materialist humanists. But I would still argue that we do not like the concept of, being, of God being God. We resist the true God of the Bible. 
We resist Jesus, the Jesus that we don't get to make in our own image, and the God who shows and reveals himself, and he comes to us, not in the name of, of, of anger or wrath, but in the name of love, that he gives us his law. And we say, yeah, no, I'm, I'm okay. When he says, we, re, we, we resist when he says, you should have no other gods before me. We resist when he comes and he says, you shouldn't envy other people. You shouldn't be operating out of bitterness and vengeance towards other people made in God's image. And we don't like that. We don't like it when the king says, love mercy and show compassion. Love your enemies. No, Jesus. We don't like it when the king comes to us and says, I want you to pursue purity, sexual purity. I want you to, to give and I want you to give money generously. I want you to live, and not in a self-centered way, but in a selfless way. We don't like that. Another reason we don't like Christ being this perfect king, ruling over us, is because he just shows too much. He cares too much for the weak and for the needy. Verse 13 in the text here, look back with me. He has pity on the weak and the needy and he saves the lives of the needy. So often we don't perceive ourselves that way. We're strong. We're not needy. We're we're worthy. We're sufficient. We're all fine. We have prosperity. And when we do, and we have have these these, these privileges and blessings and we we say, thanks be to me. Way to go. I've I've earned this. I've I've accomplished this. We think we're self-made. Even in subtle ways, we think, well, I'm bad some of the times, but at least I'm better than so-and-so. I'm a bit more deserving. I won't name any names, but I'm a bit more deserving than a few people I have in mind. Let me tell you about their problems, because it makes... No, no, no. We, We don't like a king who shows mercy and compassion to people who are needy, who are broken. We don't see ourselves that way often. Hope we will. How are we going to respond? I'm going to take a little more time today to talk about some things that I hope will make their way into application from this text. A few things I think we could respond and hopefully you'll find them practical. The first is accept that you are poor and needy. Acknowledge this sinful resistance. Do you see the places in your life where you want to find refuge somewhere else that the king is not asking you to do something, where you're, you're not under his reign and under his rule. It may be hidden, it might be, it might be subtle, it might be your skepticism, it might be your selfish living. I don't know. Tim Keller, uh, Pastor Tim Keller puts it best when he says, the only way to be friends with the king, meaning King Jesus, the only way to be friends with the king is to admit, admit that you are his enemy. And frankly, only Christians can see and admit this. If we're unwilling to admit that by nature we are, as we talked at at length last Sunday, enemies of God, not by nature children who love and serve God, then we're not not on the way to surrender. What What would it mean that we would acknowledge that we are needy, like verses 12 and 13 talks about, that he has pity on those as modern you know, culture in the West and all of our affluence and all of our prosperity as capitalists, and I'm one of them, our sensibilities frown upon that. 
By the way, there's nothing wrong with being poor, but there's something horrible about being proud. Asserting ourselves as being independent and self-sufficient and and superior. The perfect king prefers people, regardless of where they are in socioeconomics, who understand themselves as having a great need for mercy and for forgiveness. Is this why, maybe it is, that Jesus opens part of the Sermon of the Mount in Matthew 5, blessed are the poor in spirit. It's an uncomfortable place to be, but that's part of it. We would respond by accepting that we're poor. The second thing, Uh, that we could do by way of response is to serve the king with full surrender and full obedience in every area, in every area that we uh, we would surrender to his kingship and authority. One of my favorite authors, Elizabeth Elliot, tells a story of a beggar in the old world. The beggar's there on the street and he has a bag and he's asking for coins. He has quite a collection of coins at the at the end of the day the king of of the land comes through on his horse and he looks at the beggar and he says to the beggar give me all of your coins and the beggar reaches into his pouch and he takes out two of the 20 or so coins that he has and he gives them to the king and the king looks at him and hands back two diamonds now as the king leaves what do you think the beggar is saying to himself I wish I had given him everything. You get the picture. Third thing I would say in response to this king in Psalm 72 is that we would be an advocate for the king's virtues. That we would be a people who are peacemakers. That we would be someone who actually prays for our government, not just complains about it. Yes, I'm talking to red and blue here. We, we should be a people who pray for those who have been given authority over us, that we would show also as a people compassion for the poor and the oppressed and the needy. This can take on a lot of, of, of facets and faces and, and, uh, and elements, but I think if you begin with prayer and love and discernment in the context of relationships, if you do it in a quiet way, a quiet way, Way, It is beautiful and honoring to God. Don't forget our New Testament reading this morning from 1 Timothy 2. That we are told that we should offer up supplication and prayers for everyone. And it specifically says for kings. And for all who are in high positions that we might live peacefully. Lead a peaceful and quiet life. Godly and dignified in every way. We want to be advocates of a kingdom where a king like this would reign. Even though it's not visible. Yeah. That we would take... And live those out. Last thing I will say by way of application and response to this king is that we would worship him in adoration. That's an exclusive thing, by the way, because it says in verse 18 that he alone reigns. Verse 11 says, may all the kings fall down and all the nations serve him. What does it mean to worship? Well, I mean, maybe we should move it beyond. And indeed, we should than just the religious ceremonial, uh, you know, the things that we do uh, visibly uh, in spiritual worship. Worship is what we naturally do when we start to attribute meaning and joy and purpose and identity and we value things, things that we possess, things that we want to possess. The things that we worship can be gadgets. 
No, that doesn't happen except on Black Friday. Um, maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a career. Maybe it's something that is altogether a, a, a wonderful thing that are good gifts. But our, our objective in life is not to identify with the things of the creation, but the creator. We can enjoy the things of the creation to the praise of the creator. Something that we long for above our maker. Something that we uh, long for and, and cherish above our maker is not good. Theologian uh, and author Cornelius Plantiga writes, We want to be re- reunited with a happy time or a lovely place or a good friend. We keep wanting to get back or get in. What's remarkable is that these longings are unfulfillable. We may want a good career or family or a particular kind of life, and these things may come to us. But if so, they will not fill all of our niches because we want more than these things can give. Even if we fall deeply in love and marry another human being, we discover that our spiritual and sexual oneness is final. It's wonderful, but it's not final. Some of you know the the famous quote that's often highlighted by C.S. Lewis when he talks about in the weight of glory, the problem that we have. There's not, there, there is something wrong, he says, of Kant and the Stoics who desire uh, this type of philosophy to, you know, just dispense with our desires. But looking at the gospel promises in Christianity, Lewis says our desires are not too weak. Excuse me, they're, they're not too strong, they're too weak. We are half, he writes, half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday, a vacation at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. My friends, herein lies our problem. We don't long for a perfect heavenly king like Jesus because we are too proud, unwilling to see our need. We're self-satisfied, we're preoccupied, we're medicated, we think we're so sophisticated, but that's all temporary. We're temporarily fooled that there cannot be more. We own um, two cars right now. One of them has the new car smell. I've never owned a, a, a new car and I like the new car smell. We also own a van that has over 100,000 miles and that has something that we call the minivan smell. <laughs> Does anyone know what I'm talking about? I heard some parents laughing, yes? Can you smell the minivan smell? No, you can't. You, you are not able to smell. The, when people get in my car, they smell the new car smell. When they get in our other car, they smell the minivan smell if they have no children. Because we don't smell the minivan smell anymore because our olfactory is completely saturated with the minivan smell. Troy, I don't know how you got into this orbit uh, off, off subject. Listen, what I'm trying to say is that our vision sometimes is so preoccupied with the things of the creation that we're so saturated we can't even pick up on the goodness of the beauty of the supremacy of the relevancy of our creator who is Jesus. It's a risky place to be that we might fail to see the glory of Christ as king. So again, accept that you're an enemy, a needy person. Surrender in full obedience to the king. Advocate for those king's virtues and worship him in adoration.
We wrestle with the mystery of this by faith. We wrestle with the invitation to forsake our pride, to exchange it all for his free grace that is offered on the cross and through the resurrection. We relinquish our, our love of our own autonomy. We surrender to a king. We stop worshiping money and dreams and sports. Not, not, not only because they can't satisfy us, but because it's idolatry. And verse 18 says that he alone is king and we should make nothing else that. Would you pray with me? Father, we look to you right now. We see more of all of this in our personal lives, our families, our communities, where there is injustice and, and sorrow and disobedience. There's, there's a great need for repentance. And we pray that you would let it begin with us, that we might be a people who are peacemakers and we would be a people who pray. And we do pray, Lord, even for the leaders right now of our own country, from all the branches of our federal government, from our, our president, the legislature, the judicial system. Lord, we pray for our local government, for newly elected officers, those who serve in law and in policy. Lord, we pray that you would bring humility to them and wisdom. We pray for you'd bring to us humility and healing, at least in part as we long for a new heavens and a new earth where the king returns in glory with peace and justice. Please come back, Christ, and make all things right and all things new. And as we wait, Lord, I pray you'd make us more obedient. You'd make us more loving. You'd make us more committed to peace and to reconciliation as we fix our eyes on Jesus, the creator and the king. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.